Howdy gamers, it's Layton here from Layton Night, the podcast that you're currently listening to in case you accidentally stumbled upon this, in which case I am sorry, but just wanted to let you know that there is a video version of this episode that is up on our Patreon for all tiers. So if you want to join us over there, depending on the tier, you can get all sorts of cool benefits. We do mini-sodes every week. We do some fun videos. Uh, You get access to our fan discord and overall it's a really lovely time and we would love to have you there. So without any further ado, here is the audio version of this episode. So if you want to do the video version, you can go to patreon.com slash Leighton Night or not. Really whatever floats your boat. Anyway, episode... So what's this that you wanted to wait until we were rolling about, Brian? We had some A-plus allergy theorizing going. Yeah, because Leighton and I are both suffering right now, and it's um, my theory, which has no basis in any kind of science, is that because it's autumn and summer weather is still happening here in L.A., we're getting both seasons simultaneously. Mm -hmm. But are are fall allergies a thing? Oh, yeah. To my body, they are, yeah. (laughs) I guess I just think of allergies as being during the summer, but I'm, I suppose they happen year-round. Well, here's a question, Adam. You've lived in L.A. longer than either Leighton or I have. Is it always this fucking hot in October? No. Like, okay, great. No, there, there's, a, there's a thing happening. It's, I don't know if you've seen the news, but it's kind of a planetary-wide thing. Ah, yes, I've heard of it. Yeah. Yeah. So it's gotten measurably warmer since yes. you've been here. Yeah. I'm not a great guy to ask about it, though, because 10 years ago, which was like, you know, already six years into my LA journey, I moved to the Valley. Right. So it got hotter anyway. Whereas I have pretty much only lived in the Valley. We lived uh, in Altadena for a year and then have been in the Valley ever since. Yeah. And if you're not a coastal elite, just understand that that Los Angeles (laughs) is made of microclimates. That's true. We're not just swanning around pretending. It's for reals. Like today in the Valley, it's probably seven degrees hotter than Hollywood. Yes. Yeah, just think of it as a hot bowl of soup in the middle of Los Angeles, because that's right. how it And then you feels. have people people living on the actual coast who where it's like 20 degrees cooler than in the valley. Those lucky they're, bastards. You know, they're right there. Yeah. I did not adequately realize how true that was until we moved here. And I guess it's, it's the mountains, right? It's yeah. that they encase different regions of of the city. Yeah, they shuttle air in different directions because there's a range that extends to the sea and there's a range coming down and it's just it's just a mess. Yeah. I think all the time how wild it is that we have a mountain range in the middle of the city. <laughs> like it's just in the middle of the fucking city. It's right there and you can walk around them, you know, and you always talk about, you know, going over the hill and blah blah blah, living in the hills. There's a major mountain range just in the middle of Los Angeles and it's it's wild. It makes going on any sort of road trip or driving at all really gorgeous. Like, that's the thing I really appreciate about Los Angeles, especially coming from North Carolina and Georgia, which don't get me wrong, you can see some beautiful mountains when you're in Georgia, but like driving I-95 or whatever, it's just pine tree, pine tree, pine tree, and then billboard, 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 and the billboards will be- South of the border, yeah. South of the border, you're going to hell, sex shop, (laughs) you're going to hell. (laughs) <laughs> that is a good name for a sex shop. You're going to hell? I shop there, yeah. 
That would do numbers for sure. It's also like a really neat like video game algorithm for a driving game, you know, that down there. It's like <laughs> sex shop, sex shop, billboard, billboard, pine tree, pine tree, pine tree. For the longest time, I've wanted to do like a little tiny game that's like it's in the middle of the night and you need to drive home through a neighborhood you're unfamiliar with and you only have MapQuest directions on a printout and you have to like look away from the driving to look down at the MapQuest. Uh But then like there's spooky stuff happening outside of the car, like stuff that you can only see in your rearview mirror and it's going faster. Like I always thought that would be fun. I would play the snot out of that game. That's a great idea. All night long. Yeah, I'll, I'll do it. I've like done concept art for it and stuff. I just, uh, you know, making that happen mechanically is something that is not my game dev expertise. There was an old game, Leighton, there's no way you remember this, Adam, you might. It was an Atari 2600 game called Night Driver. Do you remember oh, yes. this game? I played it a lot. Yes. So it had the paddle. The best part of it was you got to use the paddle, not the joystick. That's right. So the joystick for for most of our listeners are probably in their 20s or 30s or so. For old 2600 games, you had two accessories, right? It was a joystick, which everyone knows what a joystick is, and then the paddle, which was just a wheel you turned. It was a knob, yeah. It was a knob derived right from the the first massively successful video game, which was Pong, was a knob game. And and so your 2600 came with that paddle so that you could play games like that. And Night Driver was one of those. One of the very few that used the paddle. It was kind of like the NES gun where there were like a couple games you used it for. And those were awesome. But beyond Duck Hunt and whatever else the other one was, you just never beyond used Beyond what? Excuse me? Duck Hunt. Okay. Yeah. It sounds What's- terrible to try to say it out loud. Yeah, it really does. Like I'm familiar with and have played Duck Hunt. But um, <laughs> can you say it a little? Can you say it a little faster, please, Layton? Um, good. I think you got us covered you know, on that front. Quick fun yeah. fact: the chaplain at my college when I when I was going going to, to Tufts University way back in the day in the in the nineteen twenties, um, his name, honest to God, Father Michael Hunt. Wait, wait a minute. I had one of those at the school <laughs> where I taught high school for one year after college. I taught an Episcopal school. And that was the the younger chaplains. That name. is brutal. Yeah, like rough. of all the names you could pick, I found I was at a thrift store one time in Savannah, and they had like a basket that was just full of like mechanics coverall style name tags. Uh, oh. And I was sifting through trying to find a good one, and they were all in cursive, like those are. One of them was Clint, and boy, was it not. All caps. I bought it. I bought it. You know, it was like perfect. Did a double take when I saw it. So, of course, I had to buy it. And it mm-hmm. sat on one of my former jean jackets for a very long time. Leighton, have I discussed on this show? I think I can say this. The interesting thing I should say about the school where I taught high school. Have I ever uh, said this publicly? I don't know. Okay. I think I can talk about this. I think I can talk about this. So I'm going to use the word allegedly in front of everything I say for the next however many minutes, because this is allegedly true. So when I was teaching at this school, you know what? I'll leave out the name of the school right now. People can look it up. Can you make up a name for the school? Uh, yes. Let's call it uh, Harvard. So <laughs> when I was teaching at, at the Harvard school, it was 97, 98 academic year, my first job out of college. And I was going to go to music school for grad school uh, for composition, pulled out of that, needed a job. 
the only thing I could think of to do was to teach at a private school because I'm not qualified to do anything else. And I was like, oh, I'll get a math job. I'll teach math. And at a private school, you don't need to be accredited or certified or whatever the right word is. They'll just hire teachers because they like their vibe, I guess. You don't need to pass any kind of qualification test. Uh, and so I <laughs> right, which is really shocking, but true. It's, it's a bold strategy, I think, to charge families a tremendous amount of money and then hire a 22 year old to teach, you know, <laughs> high school like what? In retrospect, you know, at the time I was like, oh shit, why not? You know, and I think I did a fine job, but if I were a parent, I would be like, wait, how old is this teacher? Like, what are their qualifications? They just have a, a math degree? Fuck no, no. But anyway, they had a teacher drop out over the summer, last minute, like just decided to retire, needed to fill the position. They hired me for whatever reason. So the relevant thing about this is this was the first summer of Family Guy. <laughs> okay. So Family Guy was just a thing. It was a heady time for animated comedies. It was uh, the early South Park days. So it was, you know, the, uh, when the Brian Boitano thing was going around, the internet, the meaning of Christmas and all that. And Family Guy was just starting out. And I remember reading an article in the Times, which was like, sponsors boycott Fox. Okay. Because of the you know, objectionable content in Family Guy. And I remember the name of the group that was boycotting uh, Family Guy. It was Proud Sponsors USA. Okay, <laughs> this was the name of one, one of the groups. So a rumor starts going around the school. Hey, by the way, Proud Sponsors USA has one member who was the headmaster of the school I was teaching at. No. So it turns out that that is the school that Seth MacFarlane went to and he based Peter Griffin allegedly on the headmaster of the school and Lois was based on not the wife but the woman the guy was having an affair with. <gasps> oh. That's amazing. I love yeah. that. And so just as a pure like reputation management fuck this guy move, the headmaster, whose name I will not say, launched this you know, kind of letter writing campaign where he was the only person <laughs> writing letters. Isn't that nuts? I love that. You, you know, that committee of one has a long and rich history. There's that Catholic league that protests oh, yeah. all the time. And it's one dude named Bill Donahoe in his basement, just <laughs> sending out angry letters to everybody. And it works sometimes. That's the crazy yeah. part, right? You can verify that Seth MacFarlane did go to the school and there was not really a resemblance between the headmaster and Peter Griffin, but so, you know, how true is this? I don't know. It's the far more plausible thing. But true enough that the guy felt the need to, yes. you know, that that's very damning. If it was not, if yeah. there was no resemblance whatsoever, you yeah. would not have an issue. I will say the other thing in my life, which is like this, which is there are two physics professors at UCSD who were the models for Beavis and Butthead. And Mike no, Judge was a physics. No, 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 yeah, no, no, Mike, no. you can look this up. This is confirmed. Mike Judge was a physics major at UCSD, and he based Beavis and Butthead on two very specific professors. I don't have to look that up because a buddy of mine is running that new Beavis and Butthead, which is oh, awesome, by oh, the way. Oh, he is. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, it is. It's really good. Yeah. Wow. yeah. 
My yeah, there, uh, there was there was one guy. Sorry, Layton. You know I value your voice, but just shut up for a second. Um, uh, <laughs> there was one physics professor. This was made very plausible when you know I thought of the the one physics professor whose name I'm reluctant to say. Who who talked like this? You know, hey Brian, how's it going? Uh, it's, it's good to see you. Yeah, like a, a straight up Beavis. Yeah, that sounds pretty pretty damning. Yeah. Anyway, sorry, Layton. You were you were saying. Yeah, my very important contribution to this story as a woman. Uh, thank you for allowing my voice to be heard on this show. Uh, and anytime, anytime. And I do mean that. Thank you. Thank you. My school Seth MacFarlane story is that I had a professor when I was at SCAD. And I will not name for the professor, even though he was really, really, really cool. He was my favorite professor I ever had. But he had gone to RISD, which is the Rhode Island School of Design. That's like real creme de la creme, rich kid art school. Like the famously to get in, you have to take the home test, which is like a series of drawings. And one of them is like, you have to do an impeccable drawing of a bicycle. And bicycles are really hard, like whole thing. Anyway, but at the house that Seth MacFarlane like lived or wherever the frat was, it was the place with the fuzzy door, which is the production company for- right. Yes. Family guy. But there was the one time that my professor had gotten invited to the party and he went and he got punched in the face right in front of the fuzzy door. I don't remember the rest of the story, but just that every time he saw that, he would think about getting punched in the face in front of the actual door. <laughs> That's <laughs> Which, fantastic. God bless. <laughs> Shout out to unnamed professor. You were the sole highlight of my scat experience. <laughs> I love it. Ugh. Are you suffering allergies, Brian? Yeah, yeah. Are you know, maybe maybe I bro? am actually. I had this thing recently where I was like, I feel like I'm smelling smoke all the time. Classic brain tumor sign. Uh, stroke too. Yes, yeah, stroke too. But it was like all the time, and then I realized I spend ninety percent of my day in this office where I have this like pine scented candle <laughs> or whatever campfire <laughs> candle, which I walk in and light, you know, every day to get the smell of jazz out of here. And that was, it's definitely the culprit. So it was just a moment where I was like, what's that smell? But no, it's amazing how clueless we can be about that stuff. Because like, for instance, like, like Leighton, you know, is suffering allergies really badly right now. And so we're, we're postulating about, you know, pollens and seasons and LA. And she's doing this while, you know, almost Bond villain-esque stroking a pet <laughs> on her lap. <laughs> <laughs> That is exactly yeah. how I wish to be. I will start petting her in the same way. Oh, I uh, like that. Thank you. <laughs> you know, there was like a trend that I feel like you don't see in media anymore where it was like 90s, 2000s. And I think you could probably track this to like Paris Hilton. But blonde bimbo always carrying around tiny chihuahua. Yes. And yes. I just, I think it imprinted on my brain very hard. And that is like the L Woods kind of yes. thing, right? Yeah. Yes. In fact, I was looking for an Elwood style matching suit because, you know, we're doing our late night live show in oh, December. Yes, indeed, indeed. And indeed. I really want to have a nice fit for that. You were going to do like the, the pink suit? That's I wasn't going to do pink. There was like a lime green one. There were a couple of mm -hmm. like plaid ones. The idea of us both going full like 90s daytime talk show host really mm -hmm. appeals to me. I like like would you lot, be yeah. willing to wear the Trey Magnifique fit with a shirt? No, I can't wear that with a shirt. I can't wear that with a shirt. <laughs> what about a mesh shirt? Oh, 
Mesh shirt is good. You know what? I could do like a pastel I'm not sitting on stage with you with you having a shirt. I'll tolerate it for 60 seconds at the beginning of the show, but not the full full Mm. boat. Well, this is a discussion we're going to have to have off the air. There, There are certain rules that one has to have when one does characters. And one is I'm not allowed to wear that outfit with a shirt. And you're not allowed to wash it either, right? You know what? I did relent and washed it because... I don't know what this stain was from. It had a really big beige stain on like the lapel area, which I thought would be too off-putting. So I did. I don't know where that stain is from. Yeah, Yeah. fucking right. Yeah, couldn't tell you. (laughs) It did look like a giant like makeup stain, like foundation or something that was just like Mm. straight up on it. That's authentic then. Yeah, you know what? That is true. So my what Leighton is 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 alluding to is that my original plan for that outfit was to wear it but never wash it, so that the white just gradually got grayer and dirtier and nastier over time, and eventually, you know, just like jazz begins to fall apart over the That's years. That's genius. But, it's a, it's a great high concept idea that probably has no real world value. Correct. And nobody would notice or appreciate it except me. And then I have to keep explaining it like this and thus ruin the bit entirely. Yeah. And I think people would figure it out after a certain amount of exposure to the stench. Yes. That was the other thing is it didn't smell good. And there were, I made a tactical mistake too. I wasn't wearing like any kind of pads or anything. And so it was giant pit stains on the thing, on the suit jacket, which were just horrific. So I decided to, to wash it. I respect so, it. Well, I, I will yeah. bring up again that I do think at some point, if not for this show, we should get matching power clashing suits. Yeah. I like that. I have a vision. Can you guys tell me more about this show? Why? Yes, we can. Excellent. You and our listeners, I guess, Brian, can we reveal who the guest is? Cause by the time this comes out, we'll probably already have yes. said. Yes, absolutely. Do it. Well, let me first say I'm flattered and yes. <laughs> <laughs> You'd better come. So this show, Late Night with Brian Wecht, did not start as a podcast. We did two live shows at Dynasty Typewriter. That's how this thing started. And we were gearing up to do a third in March of 2020. March of 2020. And, you know, right before that totally uneventful month, we decided to do this as a podcast and we swept in and bought our fancy mics and shit before everyone and their mother did so. Yep. And the good news is that we had only sold three tickets to live show number three before the world shut down. But now we're (laughs) back, baby. And we have three years of podcast under our belt. And hopefully we'll sell at least five tickets this time. So it's for the 200th episode, Adam. This is why we're doing a live show. Oh, that's really exciting. Yeah. And and so where and when can I, as a a devoted listener, go about arranging to see you guys live? The show is on December 14th at the lovely Dynasty Typewriter featuring our special guest, one Mr. Alpha Rad, which I'm saying that like it's a huge announcement people probably already know. But one of our very best episodes of this show was with guest Alpha Rad. What's the title of that episode? M, Ilf? M, Ilf. Yes, that's right. Yeah, that's in my top three all time. And we figured what better person to celebrate episode 200. So yeah. Congratulations, guys. That, that sounds terrific. I mean, getting you to promo, it was like pulling teeth, but 
you know. <laughs> We're famously very good at that. You know, it, it, it's funny when we when we started this thing, the podcast was not even on the radar. I've always wanted to, you know, host a talk show. It always seemed fun. Thought I might be decent at it. I was like, let's try this thing. Let's just make it a live talk show. And then did an immediate like, well, we need more people to come to these. Let's do it online too. Why not? Within about two months of of starting it. But it's so fun to do these live things. Yeah. Absolutely. I just want to say, and and I hope I'm not exceeding my authority here, but if you're one of no, those of three ticket holders from March of 2020 and you still have <laughs> proof that you purchased those tickets to see late in night, you can oh. get into this December 14th event absolutely free. You know what? Yes, I will honor that. That's a great idea. Thank you. I actually also would like to say, if you are one of those three, you will also receive a free matching peaches and lemons pin set because- great. Boy, those oh, things wow. have sold like hotcakes 100%, and that's not why I'm probably going to give them away willy-nilly at this show. But there will be an exclusive poster also available for purchase. There was this heady time where pins were hot, and everyone's like, oh, we got to make pins. And then that market dropped off a cliff, and after that, we started selling pins. And I got to say, it's a pretty inspired design. We do the segment peaches and lemons. And so it's two pins and it's a slice of a peach and a slice of a lemon and they go together like a heart. So you can put them together or you can give one to a friend. I want one. You can definitely have a pin. (laughs) You have extra? Oh. Oh, Oh, yes, we do. do. (laughs) Indeed, indeed we do. We need to make sure that we restock cum hats for that show. The only item that we've ever done that's actually sold substantially is a shirt that says, stay safe, come hard. And that one did numbers. Because that was Leighton's catchphrase. Was it really? That's great. It's like a superhero thing that you'd yell as you went <laughs> yeah, into battle. At the end of every episode. Yeah, basically. I believe we had done an episode on advice and somebody was maybe asked for advice, but then also was like, you know, any tips for safe anal sex? And so, oh, that's right. I yeah. forgot about that. Yeah. <laughs> Stay safe, right. come hard was born. Yeah, it's good advice. My favorite thing is somebody left a comment on one of our Instagram posts that was like, I saw a guy at the gym wearing this shirt and I asked him what black metal band it was and he told me it was from a podcast. And so here I am. <laughs> yes, and that's just right. I forgot about that. bewildered black metal fan, if you're out there, God bless you. Boy, we got really masturbatory <laughs> yes. in the first, you know, we're really shilling for once. Yes, that's fine. That's good. It's about time someone did. We should also tell people that indeed this is Leighton Night with Brian Wecht. My name is Brian Wecht. And over here we have Leighton Gray. Leighton, please say hi. My name is Leighton. I advise you all to come and be safe. C-O-M-E. I, I wouldn't mean it any other way. Come and to the live Ga- show on December 14th. Come at Dynasty to the live show. Yes. I have to, shit, I have to write that down for the poster. Uh, come to the live show. Now I'm going to have an insane sticky note on my desktop that just says that. Anyway, mystery guest who's been so patient. (laughs) Would you care to introduce yourself? Absolutely. My name's Adam Felber. I'm a podcaster. I'm a writer and I'm a performer of of sorts. You can hear me on things and read me on things. Yes. And watch things that I've written. In the podcast world, I am the co-host of Nobody Listens to Paula Poundstone. Proud to say that we uh, bypassed our 200th episode without having any kind of live event. We're at episode 275 right now. Wow. We recorded awesome. it this week. 
And you can hear me on uh, frequently on NPR's Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me. I've written a lot of TV, including a, an 11-year stint on Real Time with Bill Maher. I've got a couple of books out, that kind of stuff. Yeah. Uh, oh, here, let me do the book because we yes, might please. touch on that later, Brian and I, because it's relating to something that we're working on. Over the pandemic, around exactly the time that you guys started this podcast, I co-wrote the memoir of a noted Hollywood B-movie impresario, just a, a legend in the business, Roger Corman-esque. His name is Charles Band. I co-wrote, with credit, I'm on the cover, his his memoir, and you can buy it right now. It's called Confessions of a Puppet Master. And his movies are kind of insane. His life is a million times more batshit insane and so entertaining <laughs> to read about. So I, I heartily recommend that for you guys. Yeah, th- this is going to be very much of interest to listeners to the show who are generally cinephiles and absolutely will know some of these movies, such as Puppet Master, Demonic Toys, Ghoulies, Trancers. Evil Bong. Evil Bong, Trancers, uh, Ginger Dead Man. Yeah, there's there's oh a lot. Oh, my God. How did that collaboration come about? It very uninterestingly, I got a call from my my book agent. I had not written a book in fifteen years, and I got a call <laughs> from my book agent saying um, that Harper Collins wants to publish this guy's memoirs, but they know he's not a writer. So my agent sent him a stack of books, of which my novel Schrodinger's Ball was one of them. And this guy and his ex wife liked that book the best of all the books. So suddenly I'm in the world of nonfiction and uh, talking to this guy throughout the beginning of the pandemic every Saturday and getting him a chapter before the following Saturday. That's amazing. I've always been so curious how that sort of collaboration works between the person sort of imparting the information and the person synthesizing it. Like, I would love to hear more about that back and forth. I wish I could tell you that I researched how it's done or how (laughs) other people do it. You know, he's kind of a unique individual and to an extent, so am I. So I just kind of came up with this thing. I was like, how about if I call you every Saturday morning or you call me and I'll record you and I'll write you uh, a chapter over the week and we'll see how it goes. He has no pretension to being a writer, you know, and he he's used to getting things done fast and perhaps in a somewhat slapdash manner at times. That'll happen when you produce 350 feature films. And so, so I had a lot of freedom to tell his story in his voice the way I thought it should be told. And it was it was just a blast. That's so great. I knew about the book. I had not put together the name with these movies until like last week we were having lunch. And I was like, oh, wait, it's those movies. I had not put that together at all. And it turns out that one of his uh, probably most famous films, Ghoulies, right, was something that absolutely traumatized me as a (laughs) 10-year-old because of, you know, effects that now would be laughably silly and there were scenes from that movie, one in particular with the giant tongue that I, I, I remember very clearly renting Ghoulies on VHS, taking it home, watching it, and having to turn it off because I was too scared to continue. I was not a strong-hearted kid when it came to that stuff, as I am not a strong-hearted adult when it comes to this stuff. But I have a very clear memory of this film and its effects on me as a, as a boy. Well, that particular one was traumatic. And, and I have to say, Charlie himself loves the trauma that he's caused. Um, <laughs> one of his favorite things is, is that in convention after convention, when he's like signing stuff, people of a certain age 
pretty much exactly your age, Brian, come up yeah. to him with great frequency and tell him about Ghoulies, that movie in particular, and that movie's yeah. poster in particular, because even if you weren't brave enough to go see the movie, you saw the poster, which was a monster emerging from a toilet. And yeah. he always has these people coming up to him and saying, like, because of you, I didn't go to the bathroom between the ages of eight and 11. Uh-huh. And my parents had to take me to therapy and stuff. And he he loves that story. Yeah. Of course. Why wouldn't you? That's the best. <laughs> yeah, it is the best. I long to traumatize people with my art. <laughs> yeah, I did the wish fulfillment. Now it's all about, you know, laying awake in bed, staring at the ceiling, thinking about a thing that we did. What more could you ask for? I am curious for you, Adam, what were those like early childhood sticks with you oh, yeah, forever? Like movies or movie posters? Oh, when I was way too young, it would like... Like, you should never, ever do this. My parents took me to see the remake of Invasion of the Body Snatchers starring oh, Donald yeah. Sutherland and Leonard yes. Nimoy. And it, I didn't sleep for a long time after that. There's a moment at the end, spoiler alert, once the plants have taken over. Throughout the movie, there's this old hobo and his dog that you sometimes spot in an alley or something. And in mm-hmm. one of the very last moments of the movie, when all hell is breaking loose you see that I guess only one pod hatched next to this hobo and his dog. So it's like a little pug dog with the hobo's face on it, running around looking very upset. <laughs> oh man, that moment <laughs> just that, tortured seven-year-old the, Adam. The scream moment from from that torture. Oh the yeah, that's film, iconic. Too, right? Yeah, iconic. Wow, I've never seen that particular remake. I think the last time I saw Donald Sutherland in a movie was... Uh, Fuck, what's the name of it? You can see his dick is out in it. Hold on, I gotta... The uh, Hunger Games, but with dick? <laughs> <laughs> no, it's... Uh, uh, don't Look Now. Don't Look Now. That is a great... Have you guys don't, seen Don't, don't Look Now? One. No. No. Uh, it's a fantastic, like, Giallo era with one of the wilder movie twists of all time. And if anybody's seen In Bruges, the movie set that they stumble onto. Right, the movie set that they stumble onto that the girl who plays Fleur in Harry Potter is on, they're doing a remake of Don't Look Now. So I have a greater appreciation of In Bruges having seen Don't Look Now. I'm curious, Leighton, what were those movies for you as a kid? Well, as somebody who endlessly fetishizes my childhood experiences of wandering (laughs) the aisles at Blockbuster... The ones that really stand out to me, one missed call scared me very much. It's like the the mouths, his eyes, the Silent Hill one where the oh, girl doesn't sure. have a mouth. Mm-hmm. Child's Play, and I think particularly Seed sure. of Chucky for some reason, that one really got me. But in mm-hmm. terms of like, you know, seeing movie stuff that fucked me up, my earliest one was that I really, really loved and to this day still love Ron Howard's Sally Grinch Still Christmas I legitimately, unironically think it's a great movie. But the issue is that on the DVD leading up to it, there is a trailer for like an anniversary re-release of E.T. Now, mm-hmm. it's been long established on this show. I fucking hate E.T. Yep, but I would I like okay. to run out of the room, make my parents fast forward past the E.T. trailer so I can enjoy Jim Carrey um, in you know prosthetics. A friend of mine got to carry Jim Carrey around throughout that movie. He was one of the who's. Really? Yes. Wow. I know that he, uh, they they like got him a CIA interrogator to like 
coach him through withstanding torture techniques because of how <laughs> awful the prosthetic process was. Yeah, it was apparently really awful. There's a great Matt Rogers, one of my current favorite comic voices, song about Christine Baranski's character, Martha May, who I believe is the name. Yeah, of yeah. Who? And how she's like, you know, this horny older who. Uh, I forget the name of the song, but it's on his Christmas special and album, and it's amazing. I so have to I listen highly, to that. Highly recommend it. Even at a young, tender age, Martha May Huvier was doing some stuff to my brain that I didn't understand. So yes, well, listen, Props listen to, to this Matt Rogers song. It is really, really great. Yeah, that movie is like weirdly horny in a couple of different directions. I've heard. Have you not seen it? I have not seen it. This Christmas, you, me, Jory, or whatever poor sap we rope into doing this, we're going to do a goddamn commentary track of that okay, movie. It's sure. genuinely great. Okay, I believe you. And I trust your taste. You shouldn't. That's your first mistake. <laughs> I give plenty of recommendations on this show. You should never listen to me, but mm-hmm. I'm going to make you watch it because I think you'll get a kick out of it. It's okay, just like great. a really fun Jim Carrey performance. It really is. I saw it back when it came out. I was just supporting my friend because it was... His first ever movie role. So it was a big deal. Wow. Oh, that's cool. That's awesome. Was that post or pre Cat in the Hat? Oh, very pre. Cat in the Hat happened because of Grinch, I think. I see. Okay. Because Grinch <laughs> they was didn't, good. They didn't learn they... their lesson. <laughs> and then they doubled down. <laughs> <laughs> well, everyone always wants to get involved in the Dr. Seuss thing and nobody ever knows how to do it. And I say that as someone who worked on a Dr. Seuss slash Muppets kids TV show in the 90s. Oh, wow. It's hard to do Dr. Seuss kind of stuff. What was the show? It was called The Wubulous World of Dr. Seuss. Um, It was on Nickelodeon. When I was hired to do it, it was because they wanted to make it a, um, it was maybe my second or third TV job. They wanted to make it a, um, a family show so that like families could get together and there'd be like Simpsons-esque funny in it for the adults, but kids would love it because it was, you know, Jim Henson versions of Dr. Seuss characters. About two months into the development process, they said, no, it's not a family show. It's a preschool show. And they sent us all into workshops to learn how to make preschool shows. Whoa. It was a a very flawed process in the making of that Okay. (laughs) I need to know everything about workshops for making preschool shows. The one thing I remember, and and I apologize to this man if he is alive and hears this, but we were sent an expert who, because I, you know, because I'm such a, I study hard. I read his stuff before we did a workshop with him. And he was one of the pioneers of kids television back in the day, explaining why Sesame Street was so good for kids. And I read his paper and it was brilliant. And in the late 90s, you know, Nickelodeon kids TV oeuvre, he had transformed himself into somebody who had reversed on all those things because by the 90s, it wasn't about making things that were good for kids. It was about keeping eyeballs on screens, which it still Uh is today. If Uh you have a hard transition between one thing and another, like they did on Sesame Street or, you know, in all those Warner Brothers cartoons, you risk a kid looking away and thinking. Right. And by the by the late 90s, Nickelodeon did not want kids to look away and think because if they look away and think, they might not look back. Mm-hmm. So all the things that this one academician thought was great about Sesame Street, oh, kids are taking time to process after they see this skit or this number thing, was all the stuff he was working against to help create enhanced eyeball time. Oh, wow. That sucks. Whew. It's, has Sesame Street updated 
to be more like that? I, I haven't watched Sesame Street. I have no idea. 40 years or whatever. You know, I'm curious what modern Sesame Street looks like with that in mind. One of my go-to I'm in a bad mood and I need to be cheered up videos is James Gandolfini's guest spot on Sesame Street talking about mm. like what he does when he's scared. It's so wholesome. That's fantastic. So I have seen that. This show, Adam, would have been roughly contemporaneous with Muppets Tonight. Is that right? Roughly, I think. I have no idea because there were so many little Muppet, you know, reboot, yes. Muppet show reboot efforts that none of them have ever really worked. No, there was a lot to like, I thought, about Muppets Tonight, but nothing will click the way the original did. Was Muppets Tonight the one with the Jamaican host? Yes, Clifford. Okay, yeah. And had a bunch of the same characters and then a bunch of very 90s celebrities. I remember they did a, not 90s at all, but they did She Blinded Me With Science, where some, someone kept slapping people's eyes into microscopes. They were like looking through and someone would hit him in the back of the head and get blinded with science. It's a testament to how incredibly successful that show was with kids that Leighton seems to have absolutely no idea what we're talking about. (laughs) Yes, indeed. Well, and I wish I could remember if they took any characters from that into future Muppets things. Maybe not. And then I just gave up on the newest one where they were like backstage at a talk show or something like that i don't know yeah that is a a new one i haven't watched it either late and back in the day muppets were important (laughs) i believe it so i've heard this shift got me thinking about you guys know the omni center in atlanta georgia uh where the cnn headquarters is they've got the huge escalator yep i learned semi-recently do you guys know what that building was originally made for It was originally bought and built to be a Sid and Marty Croft theme park. (laughs) No! Really? Yeah. And it did not do well. Oh, yeah. Shocking. I mean, talk about terrifying. There are a few things more genuinely terrifying than the Sid and Marty Croft stuff. Yeah. Yeah, well, that takes your experience as a teacher in a private school who's not necessarily qualified and multiplies it by a a million (laughs) because who decided that these two acid heads should be determining what kids are watching? Yes. Like just taking every bad trip they've ever had and going like, yeah, man, it's a, it's a world where hats come to life. Yeah. Oh yeah, exactly. And then like, even, even at the time when I was a kid watching this stuff, I found it very off putting. There's something about, yeah, there's this window of art from like 1965 to 1978 where I find most of it terrifying to this day. Like the, all the Sid and Marty Croft stuff. Yeah. Lidsville for sure. Land of the Lost was one. I the only one I watched like regularly, regularly still awful. All the, like that Beatles yellow submarine animation. I hate. Oh, I recently saw the the remaster of that. That's still terrifying and not very good. No, there's just something about that. I don't know if it's like the goopiness of that animation style has always seemed scary to me. The the Gilliam stuff from Monty Python yeah. is yep. grotesque, like very deliberately so, but is not fun to watch. Uh, I, I don't know what it is. I hate that stuff. And that's why it's hard. Like, I love what they're trying to do with like electric company and this like seventies Sesame street stuff. But whenever they cut away to animated bits, 
it's an experiment in terror. Like it's grotesque. <laughs> I, yes. An experiment really in terror is just probably the episode title here. It's yeah. I guess yeah. in sort of in the same vein. Have you guys seen the movie Fantastic Planet? Oh, I, yes, I know what you're talking about. Yes, I have with seen the this blue guys, a long with the red time eyes. ago. Yes, 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 yes. That that's the first thing that I think of. Very unsettling animation, but the posters are cool. Like looking at it, still, it looks yeah. cool. What's interesting to me is a lot of that stuff. I feel like. You know, you're a kid, you just kind of accept it, you're not put off by it, then you go revisit it as an adult, and you're like, whoa, what the fuck is going on with this? That stuff, <laughs> even as a kid, it was not cool. And I, I, I don't know if it was it all acid. I mean, that's what it feels yes. like, is the effect of 100%. people just doing acid. Okay. Oh, yeah. I think it, it's people doing acid, it changes their changes their brain a little bit, and they, and they, they need it out of them, so they put it on a screen for kids. Yeah. <laughs> Isn't that all art just an expulsion of <laughs> shit you need out of you? Yeah. I mean, th- th- this does kind of go back to these traumatizing movies as a kid where for me it was the style of the VHS covers that, you know, were scary more so than the actual films, which I couldn't bring myself to watch anyway. Actually, one, the Experiment in Terror thing reminded me there was this movie Monkey Shines, an experiment in fear where it has like one of those toy symbol monkeys on the cover. And it scared the shit out of me when I was however old I was when I came out 10. And I think a guy trains a monkey to kill people or something. I don't know. I never watched it. I'm still too scared of it. That toy monkey with symbols shows up in tons of movies. Didn't Spielberg use them like four or five times in like your beloved E.T., I think even. If not in Poltergeist. Definitely, definitely, yeah. It's a great poster. And as we've discussed in the past, like good movie poster taglines such as demented, disturbing, de Palma. Uh, <laughs> here's the one for Monkey Shines. Once there was a man whose prison was a chair. Oh, yes. The man oh, had a monkey. They made the strangest pair. The monkey ruled the man. It climbed inside his head. And now his fate would have it. One of them is dead. <laughs> I think all posters now should have that. <laughs> yeah. Which one is the correct question? Yeah. I agree. I mean, rhyming taglines are the best. Yes. That's a lot of text to put on a a poster. But of course, they didn't used to be shy about that stuff. You look at posters from like the 30s and it's practically an essay. <laughs> I love it. It looked so yeah. much better. Brian, what was the one that we were talking? It might have been a 12 mini. 12 Angry Men. Wasn't oh it 12 God, Angry Men? Oh my God, yes. Good memory because I wouldn't have figured you, that Adam, out. Do you know the 12 Angry Men poster? I do not. Look it up if you can. There's so much great stuff going on with it. Oh, yeah. There's a lot going on on that poster, isn't there? <laughs> this is the yellow one with the knife? Yes. Life is yes. in their hands. Death is on their minds. It explodes like 12 sticks of dynamite. Henry Fonda, 12 Angry Men. Yes. I especially love the graphic hierarchy of that because it feels like they did this perfectly composed life is in their hands, death is on their mind. Like the the composition works great. I went to art school, but it feels like somebody at the studio was like, this is not, it's just guys talking in a room. Yeah, we need to really amp this up. So it explodes like 12 sticks of dynamite, which it's a great movie. I wouldn't say it explodes like 12 sticks of dynamite. No, that's a lot. (laughs) That's a lot of dynamite. Uh, My favorite thing about this poster is the very long, uh, I don't know what you'd call that, serif question mark on the two in 12, which... They clearly extended just to make it justified with the ends of angry men, but makes it look bananas. It's, it's really like it. great. 
<laughs> I mean, it's it's arresting. There's no way that you could see that poster and not have some interest. Yeah. Yeah. It's I that agree. whole era of of posters and like pulp novels, like the graphic design. We peaked there. It all sucks now. Mm-hmm. Yeah, hundred percent. The pulp novel covers are the best. Uh, Do you know the paperback paradise Instagram account? Is that one that gives all those pulp novels covers every day, one one a day? They take the art from old pulp novels, a lot of like science fiction from the 60s and 70s, but then makes up new titles and blurbs for them. Hilarious stuff. It is so funny. And it's like one of the funniest things on Instagram, I think. That and Rigs of Dad are my my favorite. Oh, yeah. Instagram accounts. We must have talked about Rigs of Dad at some point, Adam. Skeletons Fucked Up My Naked Husband is my all-time favorite uh, paperback (laughs) paradise cover. Do you know Rigs of Dad, Adam? Have you ever? I am familiar with Rigs of Dad, but I can't say I'm a longtime listener. But it's just dads with their stuff, right? Well, it's dudes with stuff. And then the real art of it is the captions. Like, it's just pictures of, you know, kind of people with crazy amounts of gear. The, the the joy of that account in terms of the pictures is the gear mismatch with what the people are wearing. But they've created this whole fictional world in the captions, which I find really, really fun. And, the you know, a lot of very D-minus guitar puns, which are fantastic. So, <laughs> I like worst, that a lot. Yes. The worse, the better. Adam, it sounds like you've had such a long and storage career with TV and podcasting and writing. I'm curious, like how that trajectory went for you. Like, did you think that you would end up all these places or? No, no. I I think the reason I was in all those places is because I'm shitty at running a career. And (laughs) with every success I've had along the way, I've decided not to do more of that and instead do something else. So, you know, after working on a couple of children's TV shows, I was like, I have got to write a novel and a screenplay. So, and and after getting my first screenplay, this is super lucky. I didn't realize that at the time, getting my first screenplay optioned by Paramount. I was like, oh, now is when I finish that novel. And <laughs> when the novel miraculously sold and, and was published, I was like, it's time to move to L.A. and work in late night TV. So, mm-hmm. yeah, there's no trajectory at all. I like to hear it. Those are always the most interesting careers to me of just people who kind of bop around and try different things. A lot of people I know have done the same. It's just like, oh, this seems fun. Let's do that and see where it goes. And sometimes it works out and sometimes it doesn't. But when it works out, it's always like, oh, that's cool. Great. I got to do that thing too. Yeah, that's how I feel about almost everything I've gotten to do. It's it's you know, stuff I fell into and I'm really happy about it. Like like the Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me gig, which is like such a big show on NPR now and was such a huge, a miserable failure when we started. <laughs> like, like I, you know, we recorded remotely like we are now, but I, I would have to go to the NPR bureau. This is the very end of the 90s in New York and Peter Sagal would be in Chicago. And like I was doing comedy shows on the New York scene you know, several times a week. And my friends, when I was like, I was sometimes a music playing sidekick, they would refer to my gig on stage as Adam's imaginary NPR show. Because <laughs> we were not at wow. that point on in New York. And <laughs> yeah, that's how I was, you know, not paying my way, but like earning extra beer money every week was doing this show that nobody had heard of. Right. And now it's like this juggernaut where, you know, you're yeah. playing huge theaters and it's it's like, I feel like kind of the flagship 
NPR thing, right? Yeah, it's something like six million listeners a week, That's which insane. is kind oh my of a God. lot. Yeah. So I've gotten That's to so play great. like Carnegie Hall and Tanglewood and Wolf Trap and stuff like that. Yeah. How amazing. What turned, the, was there like a hockey stick with that or was it just gradual building? Yeah, and how time? can we steal that hockey stick? Yeah, well, <laughs> look, I've been trying to steal that hockey stick and they won't give right. it to me. No, it was just a buildup over years and years by like the early ooze, it was kind of a thing. And by yes. 2005, it was like completely established. And by around then is when we started doing them live all the time. So, you know, we'd get flown to Chicago or whatever other city we were playing in. And I think that was really what helped to take off because there's no substitute for being together live. Yeah. Especially pre-pandemic before we all mastered this kind of like Zoomy thing. Yeah. Totally. I've I've never heard anybody call it the early ooze before and I'm stealing that and that's the only <laughs> thing that I'll call it now. Yeah. I mean, when it you, felt like when that to me too. When you were five, Layton, right? Shut the fuck up, Brian. What? I'm, it's true. That's a statement yes, of fact, right? It's true, but you shouldn't say it. Why? It's fine. Everyone, it, it it's a compliment. Fun. Everyone it was born fun. sometime. You do seem to be like 20 nothing years old, right? Ugh. Yeah, basically. <laughs> that got the response I was kind of hoping for, so great. Yeah. Layton is, like many people I like and work with, substantially younger than me, but I feel vastly smarter and more educated. And so has the cultural knowledge of someone twice my age, which is part of the reason I like doing the show. Yeah, there's, there's, there's a good it. breadth You've of knowledge it. there, if we can talk about her as though she's not here. Uh, oh. uh, definitely. Yeah. Yeah, it's uh, it's also just like I was an incredibly serious, grim child who read a lot. <laughs> and, you know, that never really went away. I remember I was uh-huh. like 10 and my mom bought me a book that was like the encyclopedia of immaturity, just being like, lighten up. So, uh, <laughs> oh, oh, can, can I fucking tell you something that that reminded me of? There was so my dad yes. had a, uh, a a retail store in Pompton Lakes, New Jersey, and they had a gift section. So occasionally, you know, like tchotchkes and random shit, a lot of golf related stuff, kind of like a Spencer's gifts sort of section. One upside of this was that I would occasionally go with him to it was like the gift convention at the Jacob Javits Center where all the do, oh, you know, yeah. vendors yeah, know would be about. out yep. with their like chattering teeth and that stuff. But I remember there were these like, I couldn't tell you who the publisher was, but like these comedy books, you know, like eight and a half by 11 size books of like stupid illustrations with, you know, whatever. And my dad got one of these for me because he said, this reminds me of you. And the book was entitled Wimps. <laughs> And, Whoa. Yeah, and by the way, my father was not like a an aggressive, hard, you know, dude. He was a very like soft and cuddly big Jewish guy from North Jersey, like, you know, he was not the square-jawed like wake up it's 5 a.m. type guy. Right. Like he was he he got me this book and was like I saw this at the gift convention and it reminded me of you. Wimps. Fucking stayed <sighs> with me to this day. That's hard. Yeah. I'm now very curious, and this is one of those touchy podcast things where feel free to to bow out on this one, but can you think of a gift that you've received in your life that was like either brutal or inappropriate or just stuck with you for it being, f- feeling like an insult in a way? Hmm. 
Yes, and it kind of ties to what we were just talking about. I don't know who gave me this, but like when I was a kid, I was like you, Leighton, except for the grim part. I, I, was, I was goofy as hell, but I read all the time. It's what I did. And sometimes people would give me, you know, thinking kindly of me, would give me joke books. And this is literally about two months ago. I, I thought to myself, did I imagine this or was I given incredibly racist joke books as a kid? I mean, I seem to remember them being bestsellers too. And was I looked it truly into it. tasteless jokes. No, the one that I was first given was the bestseller entitled A Thousand and One or something, Polish Jokes. And the the gimmick was that if you flip the book over, the back cover was the front cover and the text was inverted, did two met in the middle of A Thousand and One Italian Jokes. Oh my God. And these, the Polish Italian one, it sold so well in the 70s. So somebody gave me that. But I received other ones. and and, And the reason I did a deep internet dive on it was like, was there one that sold really well that was a book of white people jokes and black people jokes? I was like, that can't be. I must be imagining it. So I spent some time on the interwebs doing one of my 3 a.m. deep dives that is my wand. And yeah, same author. I think his name was Larry Wilde wrote the official. Oh, it's called official, not a thousand one. The official black folks slash white folks joke book. Oh and it's soul. It was a bestseller. And the thing that's even more disturbing about it is if you go on Amazon right now and you know how you can find used books, all mm-hmm. of these books are so fondly remembered by a certain coterie of, of course. crotchety boomers who remember <sighs> these things as being their favorite books ever. And this was yeah. like, I would guess late 70s. That's nuts. And so just the you fact that I opened and read those books embarrasses me. Publishing this yeah. kind of thing now, five stars. <laughs> yeah, exactly. When I got social validation for my racism. There is not a single part of what you just said that isn't 100% accurate. That is what you will find. <laughs> yep. It's should you Google that stuff. It's the you can't say anything anymore crowd. Mm-hmm. I remember the the truly tasteless jokes, which were a few years later, I guess, probably early 80s, something uh-huh. like that. I remember my dad bringing those home from the store and thinking they were great. And I, I, I'm sure none of that holds up oh, no. either. But there's something fascinating about joke books, right? Because, yeah, I mean, they're obviously not really for comedians, but at some point they get so old and stupid that they come back around you know, do you remember uh, Milton Berle's private joke file? I don't remember that there was a book, but that's fantastic. I'm glad yeah, that so it exists. As I, as I recall, a pretty big book called Milton Berle's private joke file. And you could look up jokes by topic on, you know, on, that's on whatever amazing. you want. Yeah. Yeah. I don't understand jokes. I had to learn to write them like jokey jokes. Like I, I think I first had to learn to write them shortly before I got the job over at Bill Maher's place. But then when I got to Bill Maher's, it's suddenly like, congratulations, you're also a monologue writer now. (laughs) Right. And you have to write 60 jokes a week on Thursdays and Fridays. Yes. And how many of those would actually get used? Oh, well, if, if you were to watch his monologue, he probably does about a dozen jokes a week. So you've got seven or eight writers writing 60 jokes a piece and, you know, most of them just disappear. Is it as stressful as it sounds? It's a little stressful. I think other late night shows are a lot worse than that one in terms of the work environment. But yeah, having to pump out that many jokes, especially when you're not schooled as a joke writer, it's a very particular art form. 
if I can call it that, which I probably can't. <laughs> well, I mean, the hardest, having to write jokes, A, B, having to do them in volume and under pressure is like, I'm not feeling funny. I do not. This is the least funny and I've ever And in someone felt. else's voice too, right? Yeah. Yes. But, you know, bright side, I only had to do it for 11 seasons. <laughs> Should we talk about the thing we alluded to before we started? Yeah, let's do that. <laughs> Go ahead, Brian. Tee it up. Well, Adam, you've done actual work on it. I've barely done anything. <laughs> but there's a, uh, I guess, a not-so-secret project that made the rounds on the internet that uh, yeah. you're involved with and brought to me for maybe some stuff that I, I think you should you should talk about. It. You're the one who knows. All right. I, over the summer when everybody was tweeting this exact joke, I tweeted something along the lines of like, I would watch the hell out of a movie about super cheery plastic dolls that develop an atomic bomb. Because, you know, everybody was making a Barbenheimer joke. And and I was like, okay, I've made my joke. The the requisite dozen people have liked it and retweeted it. And that was that. Except like two weeks later, I woke up and I was like, oh, wait a minute. I happen to have written a book with a man who can make a movie so fast and so cheaply that the idea would still be culturally relevant when it came out. So I texted my aforementioned collaborator, Charlie Band, and I said, dude, you have to make this movie now. It's called Barbenheimer. This is what it would be about. And um, I just waited because I knew that he wouldn't necessarily love the text, but I know that he'd run it by his son and run it by his fiance. And they would, they were, you know, they would tell him, yeah, you have to make that. And sure enough, the following Monday morning, he texted me, we are making this. What do you think of this poster and this text for the press releases going out this afternoon? And yeah. <laughs> <laughs> coming to your screen, it's shooting in a couple of weeks and coming to your screens this Christmas, Barbenheimer, the motion picture. And so I'm, oh I'm, I'm doing what work I can on it. I can tell you that the screenplay is completed and that there will be, it looks like, two songs, two original songs in the movie by Brian Wecht. No fucking way. Yes. We're, yes. We're, <laughs> so we're working on this right now and it's really fun and you know it's so fun it's probably not going to be a cinematic masterpiece <laughs> no well as soon as you I said disagree. brian whacked i think people people picked up on that but yeah <laughs> as it stands right now it's it it's very clever there's no way of knowing if it will remain very clever but but uh, <laughs> brian has read the screenplay I, I read the screenplay i thought it was really fun and it was not at all what i was expecting but i don't know what i was expecting but oh, no, you didn't great. tell me that. That's yeah. awesome. Yeah, yeah. It, it, like, and I went in, I think, kind of thinking it was going to be one angle, and then it was something totally different, and I had a great time. So I, I think it, it's a genuinely fun idea and screenplay. That's so cool. Yeah, it's, it's, it's exciting. Oh, I just want to hear Vera Lynn's We'll Meet Again as, you know, Barbie dolls melt <laughs> via Dr. Strangelove. Um, that is the ending. <laughs> <laughs> More or less. The dolls don't melt. All of humanity is right. destroyed. I didn't put it in the script because if you're working on a Charlie Band Full Moon production, they, they, he never hires uh, guild writers and guild writers are not allowed to work from Historically, as I say in my book, guild writers often work under pseudonyms. That's as much right. as I can tell you about who wrote the screenplay. Right. I see. Well, 
It sounds like it's time for segments. I think it is time for segments, and I'm so glad you said something, Leighton, because our first segment is our pop culture recommendation segment. This is where you get to talk about something you've been enjoying recently, be it a book, a movie, a video game, an academic paper, anything you anything you like. We say pop culture. It can be high culture. It can be low culture. And we have a, a history on this podcast of not belaboring the introduction to this particular segment. But uh, I will ask you, so unfortunately, we don't and never have had the ability to play the theme song. So what I like to ask all of our guests, Adam, is... Uh, because I can't play the theme song for you. If you had heard the theme song, what would you have thought of it? I, I'm excited to hear what people want to recommend to me because I've just been infused with this fantastic uh, synth pop intro. Great. I love Is that it. the one? That's the one I'm thinking of, right? That's the one. That is the theme song for What's Poppin', and we add it in post here. What's Poppin'? What's poppin'? Yeah, see, now I'm ready. Tell me what I yeah. need to know about <laughs> what's happening in pop culture. Well, Layden, do you want to kick this off? What's poppin', Layden? Sure. What's poppin' for me is a duo of a book and the TV adaptation of said book. And the book is Sharp Objects by Gillian Flynn. Oh, yeah. It is, I think, one of my favorite books of all time. And I've only realized that once I... When I get burned out on reading new stuff at the high volume at which I read, I will just start rereading the hits, such as like Pet Cemetery, Misery, Sharp Objects, Gone Girl, just like readable. I enjoy these. But Sharp Objects, the book is amazing. And when I found out that there was going to be an HBO miniseries starring Patricia Clarkson... Mm-hmm. who I like cannot think of a better cast casting choice. Wow. Anyway, I watched it when it came out. And after I reread the book, I rewatched the miniseries. And it's just fantastic. I'm such a stickler about book to TV adaptations, but it just, it does it perfectly. And I think tonally, it comes closer to True Detective season one than like any other show hmm. that I've watched. But it's its own thing and it's great. And everybody is like acting their fucking asses off. Is that the one with Nicole Kidman in it as well? Who else is no. in this? No. Uh, it's Amy Adams, uh, Patricia Amy Clarkson, Adams. and Eliza Scanlon, who is also incredible. And I think that was her first like big acting break. And she's just mm. amazing in the show. But yeah, highly recommend. It's super, you know, very triggering material. But, you know, it's about a writer with self-harm issues going back to stay with parents. So... Sharp Objects. It's fucking great. That sounds fantastic. Yeah, it's I gotta so see good. that. It's so good. And the book is just ugh, amazing. I haven't read it either. Actually, wait, Brian, you yes, would please. hate it what? because mm-hmm. it's largely mm-hmm. about little girls Women. being injured oh. and murdered. <laughs> yeah. Oh. Yeah, I don't yeah. know that I can do that right away. Yeah, I can't. Wait. I have a daughter who's one year older than Brian's. Oh, yes. I, I've been admiring your little drawings in the background. Oh, yeah, yeah. Well, those are mine, but she also draws. (laughs) I just, for the nth time, rewatched True Detective season one and two. Oh. For the second time. Season one is unparalleled. We've talked about it ad nauseum on the show. It's the greatest thing ever. Can't get enough. Still great. No matter how many times I watch that thing, still great. Same. Season two. So have, have you guys seen season two of True Detective? 
I have uh, not. Season two starts out strong and then falls off a fucking cliff. Like <laughs> they start to do so much stuff right. The, the weak link is Vince Vaughn, who's not a great actor, but when deployed appropriately can be very funny. He's fine. And at some point, it, the, it just gets so convoluted. You can't remember. They have three different law enforcement agencies involved at different levels, and you can't remember who is doing what or has jurisdiction or purview over whatever. It, there's just way too much going on, and it's impossible to, to follow. I have to say I enjoyed it more the second time than I did the first, but I don't think it sucks as much as I used to, but it's still not very good. Well, also not flattering, I imagine, going to it right after season one. No, absolutely not. Like any of those HBO type things, there are actors that are just fantastic. Like Rachel McAdams is great in it. And she gets to play kind of a darker character, which you don't see much from her. She's awesome. Fred Ward. I will watch anything with Fred Ward in it. He shows up for like two episodes. I love Fred Ward. But uh, yeah, overall, it's just... The, the, the emblematic of the show is, I don't know, in like the fourth or fifth episode, Vince Vaughn's character, Frank, Frank, goes to this person's house, this woman's house, and says, you know, I'm so sorry about Stan. He was so important to me and goes through this whole very long scene about the death of Stan. I was like, was who <laughs> was, was I not paying attention? Like who is Stan? Who the fuck is Stan? And then I looked it up online and saw a bunch of articles, which were like, who the hell is Stan? Which was a character that had basically lurked in the background for the first, however many episodes and then turned up dead. Like a billion other characters do was given no screen time or depth whatsoever. And then there's this very long scene where Vince Vaughn was talking about how much he meant to him. That's kind of emblematic of the show, where there's a bunch of stuff where you're like, what? I'm supposed to care about that? Weird. And it doesn't. It's play. great. Yeah. I went to Alamo Drafthouse with Susie and Vernon to see Saw X. And while we were sitting there, the waiter came over to like introduce and we were talking. And then he at us made a time as a flat circle joke. Mm. And Vernon and I both did the Leo DiCaprio and Once Upon a Time pointing like, well, we're the ones who usually yeah. make that joke to strangers. <laughs> <laughs> Alamo Drafthouse knows. They know. Layton, do you think I could handle the Sharp Objects TV show or would that be too too much for me as well? I think you could handle it. There are a couple of shots of uh, dead children, but it's it's more like... <laughs> you know, talked about. I, I think you could do that. it. Okay, yeah. Great. And it's such a great, like Patricia Clarkson, man, like Amy Adams and Christmas no, and everybody else is great. But I just, I adore Patricia yeah, Clarkson. She's, she's fantastic. amazing. Anyway. Uh, yes. Adam, what's popping? Oh, okay. Uh, I was listening to your podcast this week from a couple of weeks ago while I bike, which is where I, where I do my pods. And I started hearing this, you know, s this segment, you know, you guys aren't festooned with segments, but you have a couple. And I was like, oh, I know what's popping for me. And then Brian goes, Star Trek Lower Decks. <laughs> and in exactly the way that I uh, have been enjoying it. I mean, I got a quick Paramount Plus because my friend said, watch Star Trek Strange New Worlds. He said, it's the best Star Trek series ever. And I was like, I'm kind of done with Star Trek. But I went ahead and did it. And I was liking it so much that when it got to season two, which I guess dropped this summer, 
Yes. I was aware that there was a crossover episode coming up, and it was a crossover with the animated show Lower Decks featuring the actors from the animated show, which I think is really mm-hmm. cool, giving voice yes. actors a chance to be on screen. And so I was like, well, if I'm gonna if I'm gonna watch that episode, I gotta sample a little bit of Lower Decks. And Brian, you're right. It's delightful. It's, it's not really great. Fun, right? It's just really no. fun. So I can't do that one because of you. (laughs) So I've got to go for something even more embarrassing because it's true. And I feel like you guys have made this place safe. And you've probably talked about it on your show. So I apologize. It's the game, particularly the iOS implementation of the game Vampire Survivors. (laughs) We have not talked about this. No. It's a worldwide sensation, global video game sensation. There is nothing about this game that on paper I should enjoy. There's nothing about it that is you know, my kind of game. It's very lo-fi. It looks kind of 16-bit. Some of it's very poorly translated because it was, you know, written by some, you know, just very obsessive Italian designer. (laughs) There's zero story. There are also zero vampires. Um, And (laughs) it's, you know, for unwinding late at night on my iPad as you slowly unlock things and get to harder levels and have to figure out how to unlock more shit that's not going to matter because the gameplay mechanics will stay the same anyway. For Mm -hmm. some reason, I find it tremendously therapeutic and uh, relaxing. That's great. Vampire Survivors. I love that for you. Thank you. The graphics look really nice. Like that just does seem like a nice place to park your brain at the end of the day. All right. Yeah, it's not unpleasant at all. And again, no vampires. Lots of bats and things. (laughs) well Mm -hmm. brian Mm -hmm. what's popping what's popping for me this week i i I can't unreservedly recommend this but yet i am watching it so what's popping for me this week is the quantum leap reboot on peacock now quantum leap is possibly the most important tv show to me as a kid i loved quantum leap i loved the Actors, you know, Scott Bakula and Dean Stockwell, two all-timers for me. Yeah, for sure. Uh, Dean Stockwell, of course, RIP. I remain a Bakula fan to this day. He's done so much great stuff. And yet he does not appear in the game Bakula Survivors. (laughs) That's right. Missed opportunity. Someone somewhere posted a Count Bakula mask, which was like Scott Bakula with fangs. <laughs> so I, I loved the original Quantum Leap. It came out when I was in like seventh grade, uh, thereabouts, and you know, they're on. Uh, I like the historical stuff. The storytelling was cheesy but fun, had a great sense of humor. And they rebooted it recently without any involvement from any of the original actors. Now, maybe this has changed in season two. I don't know. But it's on Peacock. It's a new team. There's more stuff going on. It's not actually good, but yet I am watching it. And I say this more to open up the discussion of like, is anybody else watching this? Does it, Do people like it? It feels to me like it's written with dumb people in mind in a way. <laughs> the first one wasn't. I never felt talked down to by the original, and I feel talked down to all the time. Now it might be that I'm 30 years older than I was when I watched the first. I don't know. But it has one big plus, uh, which is that Ernie Hudson is in it. And oh, wow. I don't think you can really go wrong with Ernie Hudson, who's always great. So he plays, actually, he plays a character who was in the original Quantum Leap series briefly. So I don't think he was the original actor, but he plays a character from the original. But it's, I can't decide if it's any good or not. So that's what's popping for me. I love Quantum Leap. Unsure about 
this new series. They just started season two. And I'm at that level where I'm I'm torn because I like Quantum Leap so much. I want there to be more of it, but I'm not sure if this is the more of it I wanted there to be. Hmm. But also they get to do whatever they want. So, you know, I think it's possible to love something from your childhood, but also let it go and not be a raging dick bag about it if it's not precisely what you wanted. What do you mean it didn't ruin your childhood? That's how it's supposed to go. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I would love for someone to say, Donald Belisario ruined my childhood. A sentence that I think has never been uttered uh, <laughs> Except before. Except by his kids. Yeah. All right. Well, that is what was popping. And now we have moved mm. on to our final segment, which is three parts gratitude exercise, one part petty grousing. The segment is called Peaches and Lemons. And the theme song for that segment goes right here. Peaches and Lemons. Great. Jesus Christ, that theme song was like getting hit in the face with a bucket of cold water. Cold, wet peaches. <laughs> cold water was funnier. Actually, that's claimed that, that wasn't funny in the first place. So I, I guess your punch up was really <laughs> hat on a hat, but a nothing hat on a nothing hat. Anyway, fuck it. Mm-hmm. Lemon a first. Hat on a, a wet hat on a wet hat. Yeah. Uh, lemons first. It's the thing that's a minor. Bummer annoyance. Mine is just, can we hurry the fuck up and do is commit to a season already? Like, yeah, I wake up hot. very early and it's a tease to wake up in the yep. morning and be like, ooh, mm. I need to wear long pants and a sweater. No, you don't. It's going to be 80 by noon. Go fuck yourself. I'm ready. Let's just commit. Yep. That's my lemon. You all? Uh, yeah, I can I can do mine. My lemon is just that... Uh, I was having mystery audio issues again with this kind of new setup here and I hate audio issues. I don't know how anyone runs a studio like a recording studio. It seems like you would just be in hell all the time. This isn't even a studio. It's like it's a room with some audio gear in it. And yet I still have near constant problems. I I hate that shit. It's not rewarding to deal with. I feel like I never learn anything successfully and that every time I solve a problem, Either I forget how I solved it because it was random poking around that solved it, or it's not going to be relevant because that problem is then solved and a different problem will arise in the near future. So it is a a fruitless, rewardless task to fix these things, and yet they persist. So audio issues. I get you. I get you. We should have solved that a long time ago. You would think, how do people who have a studio with like an 80 channel or whatever board and caught, you know, patches going all, all this cabling and stuff, how do these places function? The fact that anything ever gets recorded is a miracle because it just, I don't understand it. It is really fast. That's just throughout the tech world though, isn't it? Like the minute that we get something right, the first thing we do is try to improve it and thus make it less functional. Mm Mm-hmm relevant to the audio stuff, software updates, system updates. When I see system update, a chill runs down my spine. Yeah, Because too, I know sure. that all my shit is going to get fucked for like forever. And often, I don't know if you ever get this, I will get messages from Universal Audio, who makes the little audio interface that I use, which says, do not update your system. If you update your system, we will not support you. Like these very clear, don't do it. So what are you supposed to do? At some point that stops being true. So you just have to like play this weird, you know, tug of war with the other stuff on your system not working and your audio actually work. It drives me insane. 
That's my lemon. Oh, I hear that. I hear that. That's a real lemon. That's a lemony lemon. Yeah. Adam. Mine is, it's a complaint, but there's no solution for it, which is that things in nature, if they're not weapons or defenses, shouldn't be as sharp as they are. <laughs> it's just, uh-huh. I'm yeah. very fucking mad about that because yesterday, <laughs> you know, as, as you know, Brian, I, I bike a lot. My form of exercise is a bicycle for many reasons. Um, And yesterday I took an unscheduled two-mile hike from a bike path to the bike store because of sharp shit that punctures bike (laughs) tires. And I'm not an off-roader. I'm not a mountain biker. I'm literally staying on bike paths, flat bike paths, usually smooth in the San Fernando Valley. Yet three times in the last three weeks, I've blown a flat because some fucking tree seven or eight million years ago decided, oh, I need a seed pod that's a little sharp. Yeah. You know, so it digs yeah. in the ground a little better. I don't know why, why that your seed pod has to be sharp, but it's just a seed pod. Drop your seeds. Don't puncture my tires with your little thorny shit so that you can, I, I don't know, stick to a passing animal. That's the idea behind that stuff, right? Also, shouldn't tires be more resilient at this point? Like you feel yes. like maybe they should be, right? Putting the onus on humanity now, but okay, yes. You know, we're not going to do much about the tree seeds, but can we make tires a little thicker, maybe? I don't know. Yeah, that's like, probably a, a, a real solution. Yeah. I could get thicker tires, but also I could yeah. guest on your podcast and complain about it. And that's always yeah. the better yeah. option. Uh, a time-tested strategy. Yeah, indeed. Yeah. All right, peaches. Excellent. Yeah, we will each do three peaches, which are three cool, good, nice things that have happened, are happening, or are going to happen. I will go first. Peach number one, it's Halloween season, which means you can buy a big bag of Reese's Take Five, which is one of my favorite types of candy that for some reason, I feel like you can't find them. Is that true? I guess maybe that's true. I just don't see them. So I have multiple very large bags of Take Fives that in my head, I want to tell myself I'll be uh, rationing out. No, I will not. Describe the take five. I'm trying to picture it. It's like Reese's peanut butter, caramel, peanuts, and pretzels dipped in chocolate. Oh, yeah. It's a really good one. That's a really good one. That little pretzel crunch is very nice. Mm -hmm. There's a couple of underrated Reese's products there. The Nutrageous bar is not bad. That's a good one. Nutrageous Mm -hmm. is But the Fast Break, that's my personal. I don't know Fast Break. It's like the wafery one, right? It's a little wafery, but it's it's also very, very chocolatey, peanut buttery. Hmm. I do like that. I like the cups that they do that have Reese's Pieces in the cup. Just adds a little crunch. It's ridiculous. I love it. Oh, that one. Yeah. That's the, the big cup with the Reese's Pieces. I think Reese's Pieces is the Reese's product I consume the most. It's the they best. are delicious. Yeah. You and E.T. agree on that much. Yeah. I guess. <laughs> Uh, my second peach is that tonight, Brian, you and I and other friends get to see our dear friend, Hav Fogan, who's yes, just indeed. visiting us straight from space. And I'm very happy to see him because uh, yes. I also didn't know he was coming. And so it was just a nice little surprise. And my last peach is that last New Year's Eve, in a way that set the tone for the year, um, I drank too many um, 
White Claw Surges, which I thought was a fun new flavor and not a higher ABV. And thus, New Year's Eve, the very first thing I did was vomit on myself in a lift, ruining my denim jacket that I got a lot of use out of. So I needed a new denim jacket. And today, the new denim jacket arrived. And it is a Planet Hollywood branded denim jacket. Uh, And it has like the the print on the interior. It's got a thing on the back. And in just the ultimate move for somebody used to women's clothing, it has the fucking interior pockets. Hell yes. Which is my favorite thing ever. So I feel very spoiled. Those are my peaches. You know what I've never understood about interior pockets is the asymmetric interior pockets when there's one just on one side. Like put them on both. You should always put it on both. This one has both. Good. It should. Mm-hmm. And my last denim jacket didn't have like the front pocket, which I feel mm-hmm. like is the most important part of a jacket. So an improvement all around. Mm-hmm. Adam, got any peaches? Yeah. The first one's a minor one and it leads to a major one. The minor peach is that having finished a project that we were talking about earlier, or at least finished <laughs> the active phase of creating uh, Deathless Cinema, I started a new, uh, a new project this week. I, I started writing a, a book, hmm. a novel. I've never oh, written a cool. young adult novel, but it's where I am right now. I'm a young adult. No, I've got kids who are both like <laughs> kind of surrounding the young adult thing. So I, I started one. I've kind of, it's an idea I've had that's for awesome. a little while. Started writing it, finished chapter one. So that's peach number one, but we can move on from that really quick. It's going to sell like hotcakes, no doubt. And then when the movie rights kick in, I'm moving out of here. It's a dystopian future where people only write dystopian young adult <laughs> novels. That's exactly what it is. Oh, my God. It hasn't been done, has it? I'm the one person (laughs) who's chosen to not write one, and I am in a torrid romance with fellow (laughs) milk toast attractive young adult who also- That's exactly it. And we're on the run because they're going to find us and force us to write young adult novels. (laughs) Yeah, right. (laughs) Yeah. I would read that. Yeah. Yeah, I kind of would too. So it's not that. But here comes the second peach, which is a way bigger one, is one of the reasons I'm writing this is I thought like, I've got a 15-year-old and a 10-year-old. I can like let them read the chapters as I write them and get their feedback. And it would be awesome. And so my daughter is 10, turning 11 in a couple of weeks. And I let her read the first chapter when I finished it two days ago. She gave me very good feedback. That's awesome. Oh my God. No, but here comes the peach. The next day, she's at school and her teacher has to leave early. So they get a substitute who doesn't know anything. So they're just basically told to do whatever they want for the whole day. And my daughter comes home from school with the prologue and first chapter of her own YA novel. What? Oh, And the real peach side of it is while I was cooking dinner for her, she read me the thing. And... I can't tell you how good it is. It's oh, that's it so was, great. Like, I, I know she like spends her entire life telling stories. She goes off and tells stories by herself, but she hasn't really tried to write one down. So I guess partly inspired by, hey, dad just made me laugh with this prose he wrote. She wrote a completely different plot, a completely better plot, but the kind of prologue to a novel that would not be out of place. If you were to read this and you'd say, yeah, I would let my kid read this. It's very funny and very engaging and very well-written. And I almost exploded with parental pride at her creativity. It it was just a wonderful moment. So that's, that's a peach that's like twice the size of the other ones. That's so great. That's awesome. Yeah, the other one is, um, as of uh, yesterday, I'm within skipping a dinner's worth of my weight loss goal. 
That's and great. that is hard shit to do. Any of you out there tried yes. it? But uh, now, Leighton, you wouldn't know to look at me because you just see the uh, dead, sexy senior you see before you. <laughs> um, I'm not a senior yet. Uh, but uh, yeah, since Thanksgiving of last year, I've lost 65 pounds. Oh my god! Which is Congrats. like uh, kind of a lot. Yeah, that's a lot. Yeah, that takes a lot, a lot of effort. Yeah, but less than you'd think. Less than I thought. It's commitment more than effort, right? Yeah. But like I started it by going like, uh, you know what? I'm just not going to drink for a few months. Just no drinks anymore. And I realized that, and this is super embarrassing to admit, that I hadn't tried to go a long period of time in my adult life without having a drink because, you know, it's so hard to do. Or at least I'm told it's so hard to do. And it is so hard to do for so many people that I love that I didn't try. And guess what? By some genetic miracle <laughs> luck twist of fate, it wasn't that hard for me. I yeah. learned something about myself at this greatly advanced age that I probably should have attempted, you know, 70 years ago. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, congratulations all around. It's interesting too, you know, there there have been several studies and articles out recently about alcohol and its effects and how you know, not to begrudge anyone what they enjoy, but it, it's not good for you. No, there's nothing good about it. And I love it. Do you know this thing that, you know, for a long time, there was a claim that a little, like one glass of wine, whatever, you know, a day or whatever it is, it's it is actually good for you. It's the antioxidants. It right? prevents cancer. You know, <laughs> you know, you know what? Um, those were the kind of articles that my mom, may she rest in peace, would forward me almost on a weekly basis. You know, yeah. like, oh, it turns out that the wine I'm drinking isn't bad for me. I'm going to tell my son. But th- there's a there's a very clear reason why. And, and those were real studies that were done with that real conclusion. Do you know the reason that those studies showed that a small amount of alcohol is good for you? Ooh, let's both take a guess. Leighton, you first. Obvious in retrospect, but probably wouldn't have occurred to me. Maybe like kind of person who opts to have a single glass of wine is not doing more than that or something. My guess is adjacent to that too. My guess is that it's because as compared to the fact that so many people drink more. No. The reason- Damn it. Is because a lot of the people in the I don't drink category were sober alcoholics who had done so much damage to their bodies already that people who are formerly heavy drinkers is really what I'm trying to say and then got to a point where they couldn't drink anymore. If you don't account for that, then it looks like a little bit of alcohol is actually better for you. But once you take those people out of the study – then it's very clear that even a little bit is not good for that you. That seems like a very important thing to be omitted from the common. Yeah, but this is why we do science, right? It's like, you know. Yeah, it's why we do peer review for sure. That, that's right. And, you know, I don't know enough about this to say if that was like appreciated at the time or blah, blah, blah. And of course, then it becomes a way of making a, I don't want to say vice and virtue, but to be glib, a vice look like a virtue, Right. To say, oh, one glass of wine isn't bad for you. It's actually good for you. It's the same like, you know, like a chocolate makes you healthier or whatever kind of thing. Like, OK, fucking fine. Oh, that, that's because of the flavonoids. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> like, enjoy what you enjoy. Like antioxidants. Who cares? But <laughs> yeah, I, I do think it's interesting. And I, I have thought about my own relationship with alcohol. I'm I'm very far from a heavy drinker, but I do drink from time to time as like maybe I should 
drink less, even though I don't drink too much. Maybe that would just be better. So I think in general, it's, it is something I've thought a lot about in the last year or so, just as you read more and more of these things. Well, that's got to drive you crazy as a science guy, Brian, because like every time a new study comes out, you know, because the general public doesn't know the difference between a single study and, a, you know, what becomes a scientific fact is it's, it's volume, volume, volume. And yet every right. single study that has results will, you know, you've got people, you know, fecklessly posting it on the Internet saying that this proves something new that we've just discovered that, you know, That's a little right. bit of heroin goes a long way kind of thing. Yeah, well, especially with nutrition and anything related to health, it's just this constant barrage of misinformation when the basics are – you know, eat a plant-dominated diet, get some exercise on a regular basis. That's basically the advice, and that's not really going to ever change, right? And then everything else is just dressing it up. Oh, 100%. That's how I approached this weight loss was was like, I, you know, I don't know that much, but I know what a calorie is. And I know yes. that no matter what diet people are prescribing, if I don't take in a certain number and I expend a certain number, the physical, you know, results are going to happen. Yep. And for some people, they won't because everyone's different and some people it's going to be harder and some people it's going to be easier. So, yeah. you know, you can give generic advice and that'll work for most people, but not everybody. And that's basically all you can say. Yeah. Yeah. There's a great Ben Goldacre book called Bad Science, where he talks extensively about nutrition misinformation. And it's very interesting. He's a great science writer from the UK. I highly recommend him. Anyway. What are your peaches, Brian? What are my peaches? Okay, I'm going to blast through these. Peach number one was have Hogan's in town, and we're going to see him tonight, as you said. Peach number two, the audio problems that I was having are now fixed. I teed this up with the lemon, and they are Ooh. now fixed. We came within 15 minutes of this recording before they were fixed, and I was like, am I fucked today? Nope. It all worked out. And my final peach is this is a single release day for me. The second single, the final single. For my smooth jazz album is out. And, Congratulations. Uh, it's just nice to see these things see the light of day. I've already watched the video and it's fantastic. Oh, thanks. Thank you. It's yeah. really great. And I, I think I might have texted you about it or something, but it, it's a yes, great single. And there's a, I don't know whether you'd call it a bridge or a chorus, but because it only happens twice and you don't end with it, I'm calling it a bridge. The, mm -hmm. the bridge section sounds like, smooth, vintage Chuck Mangione oh. stuff happening. And it's, yes. it's, it's just delightful. So I would call that the solos section of the, of the song. And that's with Lord Phobos from Twerp, uh, did a guitar solo, and then our engineer and talented vocalist, Tom, basically mirrored it with some vocals. And it's, oh, it's, it's my favorite part of the song too. I love it. And it was one of these just like, uh, we talked with the producer, Commander Meowch, about it. And this is one of those things, we were recording it, and we just got this vocal pass from Tom Darcy, the engineer. He was like, hey, look what I did. And we were like, oh my God, this is the greatest thing ever. <laughs> and then it elevated the song that. from being like, this is fun to, oh my God, this is like amazing. So thank yes, you did say very kind things and thank you. I'm, I'm happy to see this out. And we have about a month to go before the thing is like fully out the door and the album is out there. Yay. Yep. Oh, but so. you can be selling that album at your um, late night live gig in December because it will be out. You could be, be vending be vinyl and CDs. That's right. In yes. the lobby. Yes. yes. And by this point that this episode comes out, you can get tickets to come see us on December 14th. Yes. Look on our social media for the link to do for that or 
or we will dub this over with the link to buy. But please come to the show. <laughs> It'll be out. My yes. ego can't take it if enough people don't come to the show. But also, I just want to see everybody in person and then scream at Brian in person in a room full of people. I promise I it'll be fun. Why. Yeah. Yeah. Yes, please come. And Adam, thank you for being here today. This is so great. Uh, this was a joy. I appreciate your time. Yeah. You guys are really fun to hang out with them. Thanks for having me on. Yeah. Uh, is there anywhere you want to point people to if they want to check out your stuff? You know what? Go ahead and check out under my name, F-E-L-B-E-R, that book that I wrote with Charlie Band, Confessions of a Puppet Master, because it will, if anything, if nothing else, <laughs> prepare you for this holiday season when the whole family gathers around to rent Barbenheimer, the motion picture. Yeah, right. And if you haven't seen old school full moon pictures, they are, some of them are very worth. <laughs> they really I'm are. definitely going to read that yeah. book. I am very excited to read that book. Yeah. Cool. Thanks. Layton, close us out here. Um... In closing, hope you're hydrated, hope you're staying cool or staying hot, and above all, every one of you out there that you're staying sexy. I really sold that one, huh? Wow, that was <laughs> maybe the worst closing we've ever had in an episode. But, you know, this is... Look, I'm all about the superlatives, especially in the negative direction. All right, everybody at home... Fuck off. Fuck off. Yeah. Fuck off indeed. Bye. Your body is just filled with endorphins from that jacket, isn't it? <laughs> it is. That's right, and, yeah. And my dog also says goodbye. <laughs> Bye, everybody. Bye. Bye. Late Night is produced by Brian Wecht, Leighton Gray, and Jarek Centeno. Follow us on Twitter at Leighton Night, on Instagram at Leighton underscore night, or email us at LeightonNight at gmail.com. 